Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Are you looking to provide biblically-based hope and healing to your community? Bob Kellerman is here to assist you with practical tips and thorough steps. His newest releases, Gospel-Centered Marriage and Gospel-Centered Family Counseling, will equip you to utilize your theology in a way that transforms relationships. To learn more about these books, please visit BakerBookHouse.com. BakerBookHouse.com. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And today I have with me Elisa. Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, Elisa. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. You're you're welcome. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Sure. I live in uh, just south of Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, in a little town called Spring Hill, and I. I've lived in the Nashville area since about 99, uh, moved there from Southern California where I grew up, and I am married to Mike, and we've been married since 2003, and he's the road manager in country music, so he travels a lot. We have four kids, uh, two uh, much older kids that came with the marriage, so that they they came as part of the package, and uh, then I've got two younger ones that came after, and they are 11 and 9, and so my life basically continues consists of working on a blog and a podcast and a YouTube channel and I've just written a new book so that's pretty exciting and so that's that's the current ministry project that I'm that I'm working on but God's given me just a great opportunity to get to interview a lot of great apologists people in the theology and apologetics world so it's just super fun and I love it well well that's wonderful um, I saw you in American gospel too so you did a really good job with that and uh, mm-hmm, great job and uh, you, you did a great job with this book. Can you tell us a little bit about Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity, uh, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received? Yeah, uh, I wrote the book. Uh, essentially, if you would have asked me 10 years ago if I would ever write a book, I would have said, you're crazy. I'll never write a book. I'm not a writer. I'm, I was obviously a musician and um, did that for most of my life, and uh, that's even why I moved to Nashville. Uh, but I had this experience in about 2010 and 11 where my my husband and I were attending a church in just in the heart of Middle Tennessee where we live, and I was invited to be a part of a much smaller type study group that the pastor was leading, and there was 10 to 12 of us, and it was in the context of this class that the pastor revealed that he was actually agnostic, so he didn't know what he believed about God and about Christianity, and you know, I had grown up doing a lot of evangelism, street evangelism, and so I had met atheists, and I met people who were saying things like he was saying, but it just didn't affect me all that much because, well, they were atheists. I expected atheists to not believe. But this pastor, I, I had come to trust him and I'd come to respect him. And so in the class, 
I was really rattled when he kept bringing up all of these intellectual claims that were essentially trying to disprove everything that I'd ever believed about God and Jesus, and especially the Bible. The Bible was always on the chopping block. And so I, I stayed in the class for about four months, and uh, when my husband and I left the church and the class, that's when all of those seeds of doubt that this pastor had planted in the class with all the books we were reading, the discussions we were having, that's when all of that began to really take root, and it began to grow into this really dark doubt. And I felt like I had just been plunged into this stormy ocean of doubt, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know any Christians who could answer the claims that the pastor was making. I didn't know anyone who could really interact in a meaningful way, other than just saying, well, just have faith, or the Bible says, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know anybody who had even heard some of these things. And so, just long story short, and we can dig into details on it um, as as you'd like to as we go along, but just the long story short is that God used apologetics to rebuild my faith, and so I began to be connected to different apologetics ministries. I read books, I listened to lectures, and all of the questions that I had uh, essentially were answered. And so, in 2016, I decided uh, that I really believed God was calling me to try and help other people who were encountering some of these claims. And so, a, a relevant point to the story is that the church and the pastor went on to identify themselves as a progressive Christian community. And so, that was kind of the first time I'd really heard that phrase, progressive Christian. And then I just saw it everywhere. That's when I was like, man, this is kind of, this is everywhere. This is in churches. This is online. It needs to be addressed. Because I couldn't find much information when I was going through my dark time of doubt. Uh, I That's when I started my apologetics blog and just hoping to be a light for someone else or, you know, to be sort of a lifeboat to somebody else as, as they were going through, maybe maybe they were encountering the claims of progressive Christianity in their church. So that's when I started my blog. That's that's really, really good. Um, you know, for those, before we get into everything else, for those unfamiliar with progressive Christianity, uh, what are some of the distinguishing marks of progressive theology they should watch out for? Yeah, so the broad flyover essentially is that progressive Christianity is a movement that is largely growing up and out of the evangelical church. So so most progressive Christians grew up in the evangelical church, and so it's a group of people who are questioning not just the methods of how we're applying our Christianity to the world, but they're actually really reassessing core key doctrines that define Christianity and have made it unique in the world for 2,000 years. So in the progressive Christian movement, there aren't a set of creeds that they're sort of united around saying, hey, we all believe this, kind of how Christians have been from the beginning. I mean, some of the earliest creedal material we have is earlier than the New Testament. So Christians have always been creedal. We've always been belief-based. Of course, that's going to inform our actions, and there's much more to be said to that. But in progressive Christianity, it's really not so much about what you believe. It's it's about what you do. And so progressive Christians are questioning, you know, is the Bible really God's Word? Uh, largely speaking, in the progressive movement, they're not going to view the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. They, they give themselves permission to disagree with Paul or other biblical writers. They don't like the idea that God would require the blood sacrifice of his son to cover our sins. That's referred to as cosmic child abuse in the progressive movement. And so it gives them this this gospel that 
essentially when you take all the main components out of the gospel and change them, you have another gospel, which is why I titled my book that, because the, the progressive Christian gospel is, in my view, and I argue for this in the book, I, I really believe it's, it's an entirely different religion with a different God and a different Jesus. Yeah, I, w- I was reading your book the other day and I, I finished it and I was like, man, she's had to write Jay Gresham Mation because, I mean, you uh-huh. know, uh, Christianity and liberalism, I mean, you're, you're making the same argument that he made in 19, in the 1920s. Um, and, and actually, his book, Christianity and Liberalism, was the one of the first books that I read after my faith was kind of rebuilt. And I, and I was reading this book going, what? This is exactly what I just went through. And so then I began to trace the history back. And, and you're right, you can actually, the iteration of it right now is progressive Christianity, but you can trace it back to the German higher criticism scholars of the late 1800s, early 1900s, and that's when it first sort of was, I would say, birthed in in a meaningful sense as far as Frederick Schleiermacher and these guys saying, I can't say that, that the resurrection happened and that the Bible's God's word, and they were questioning all of those things. And so that sort of, uh, the ideologies of that have taken different forms throughout the years. We've seen the mainline Protestant denominations sort of start to decline that, that adopted that theology, but there's this reinvigoration, this sort of uh uh, re reframing of those ideas and just like a fresh invigoration of it in the evangelical church right now through the vehicle of progressive Christianity. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, it makes what they do is they they try to discredit the truth and then, re, as you said, redefine it and make it based on your feelings. So it's all about your feelings. And it's like Christianity is an objective truth. It has an objective standard. It's re, it's a revealed truth. And yeah. so you know the the attacks on you know Genesis all the way through you know it's just a, an attempt to discredit the Bible an attempt to discredit everything and then redefine it and it, it's just you know it's like what do you mean by that well I mean yeah. this it means something completely different like what you talk about in the book yeah they'll use a lot of the same language a lot of the same phrases they'll even call some of the doctrines the same thing like the incarnation they'll use words like resurrection but they don't mean what we mean they don't mean what Christians have meant uh, historically speaking from the very beginning and so that's why it's so tricky sometimes too because you'll even hear progressive Christians say things like oh I have a high view of scripture I've heard them some of them even say I have a higher view of scripture than most evangelicals because I actually take it more seriously because I'm reading it how it was meant to be read you know which is this whole new and different way and so yeah it's it's very true it's it can be tricky especially for a sincere Christian who may have never heard of it they're sitting in the pew and the pastor is saying, hey, I have a, a very high view of Scripture. I have a high view of the incarnation and the atonement and the resurrection. I mean, that all sounds great. I believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Most Christians would just kind of take a breath and go, okay, I can relax here. This is a safe place. But very often, that is, they, they have very def- different definitions. Resurrection, for example, does not usually refer to the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It refers to sort of a metaphor for seasons of life, living and dying, um, say parts of your life, you know, that are ending and then there's new beginnings. They, they don't generally believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Some do, certainly. Yeah. But um, but 
that's not important again remember it's not so much about what they believe and so that's why you can have two progressive Christians who one would affirm the physical resurrection and one would not and they're perfectly fine to be in unity together because it's just not about that yeah you you raise a really good point there I was talking with somebody and they're like I listen to all of these you know progressive podcasts or whatever and I was like well that this is what they think you know you need to be on guard about these things when he said well they don't they don't talk about that on there you know they don't talk about what we just talked about about progressive Christianity I was like well I'm yeah. thinking in the back of my head I'm like well uh, I studied this in seminary I continue to keep up with it I'm like I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what's being said you know I don't keep reading everything of course but you know what would you what advice would you give to our listeners who have friends like like I do you know who are listening or reading progressive Christian books or even podcasts yeah so we're living in this postmodern culture where everybody thinks that you have to give you have to just keep investigating and, and keep doubting and keep giving everything a fair shot and I just want to say you don't have to do that as a Christian learn the real thing know the real thing you don't have to study all the counterfeits to know if something is true or false just read your Bible pray get in a good church that, that preaches the Word of God and you'll spot a counterfeit the second it comes across your desk you know but for those who just feel really compelled that they want to listen to these things they want to give it a fair shot they want to analyze and do all that I would just say you know be really careful because I was in a class for four months and it was wrecking my faith you know because there's such a good deception there's such a a masterful twist of truth it can be very difficult to discern these things so I would say you know if you're if you're not a very mature Christian I wouldn't recommend listening to progressive podcasts if you're a mature Christian and you want to help expose the movement and you want to analyze what they're thinking and believing I would just say and this is what I preach to myself just stay in the word because you know I can be reading I read tons of progressive material and listen to podcasts while I was researching for my book and it can be um, you know it's not faith building stuff it's really not it's actually faith dismantling material it will dismantle your faith if you're not careful and so I had to stay really strong with good Bible teaching I had to stay of course we need to do this always but at even extra when I would go out in my um, you know I'd go and walk and I'd listen to audiobooks for every progressive book I read I would make sure I listened to some systematic theology and some some of the Bible and just make sure I'm keeping that contrast right in front of my eyes because it is a contrast if you only listen to progressive material you're not going to be getting the full picture but if, and, and a perfect example of this is that recently I read a progressive book with a friend of mine because we were going to review it for my podcast and we were out walking one day and she made the point she said you know because uh, she was reading through the Bible in a year and she said I'm in the Gospels right now so I'm reading this progressive book and I'm reading the Gospels at the same time and it is crazy how absolutely contradictory these two things are you don't have to be uh, an English major you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew you just I mean read the Gospels and read this other book and you will very clearly see that the Jesus that's presented in both of these works is not the same person and so I think that that would be the best piece of advice as far as maybe for somebody who's being swept up by it who's being tempted by it or being persuaded by it for those of you who have friends in your life that are in that camp I would just encourage you to ask a lot of questions because it's a kind of a postmodern feelings-based mentality. Um, they don't like dogmatic statements being made because you have to remember this is a, a movement that's largely not unified around belief. Belief is not as important. So asking a lot of questions to expose the fact that they really actually do have a lot of dogmatic beliefs, which I talk about in my book, um, is a good way to invite conversation without shutting the conversation down. So maybe asking, I, I have found one really effective question with progressive 
Christians who are spending a lot of time dismissing the Bible as being the Word of God or demoting that, just asking them, well, are you know, you, you would at least consider yourself to be a Jesus follower, right? And they're always going to say yes because they like Jesus. They don't like Paul so much, but they like Jesus. And then just ask them, you know, where do you get your information about Jesus? It's a great question. Uh, and, and very often when I've asked this question, for those who are not really reading the Bible very much, they'll say, well, you know, I guess I read about him in the Bible when I was a kid or something like that. But that's a great question to ask because even just asking the question can expose the fact that they've actually kind of, they don't have an objective standard by which they're defining Jesus. It's kind of based on what whatever I would do is what Jesus would do or whatever I feel is what Jesus would feel. And so Jesus becomes this catch-all term to basically describe the person that you're looking at in the mirror. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer. You know, being asking a question invites discussion um, and, and allows the other person to, you know, as we know, to to say, hey, this is what I actually think about this. And then they have to define their terms, right? So then yeah. then you have a vehicle to, uh, to talk to them about truth and actually contend for the truth without being contentious, which is a big issue. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's the whole Second Timothy 2, 20, 23 through 24 idea. You know, the Lord's servant is to be patient and kind and gentle. And that's for every Christian, you know, to rightly handle the word of God um, in, in a manner, you know, that's consistent with biblical truth. That That's what Paul's idea there is. And yeah. so I think what you said is really, it's really, there's a lot of, there's really, really wise what you said. So good job. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the many things I, I appreciate about this book is how you approach questions and how resolved you are to dig into them, to find answers to the questions that you were asking, you know, and how important is it to have the right convictions about the Bible itself to ask good questions of the biblical text? Well, that's a great question. It's it, it's all about the Bible, right? It, how we believe about the Bible matters immensely because we are either going to view this as God's word or we're going to view it as something that we have the right to analyze and disagree with in spots if we don't like what it says. And if we decide that the Bible is, you know, I mean, I know Christians have argued for years about maybe what we mean by inerrancy or different things like this. But if you go back to the earliest Christians, I mean, the earliest creed, 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul records for us there, that predates the, the actual book that he's writing by 20 years or so. And in that earliest creed, it says that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then it goes on to talk about the resurrection. And it says it again, in accordance with the scriptures. So even for the earliest Christians, of course, the New Testament wasn't written yet, but the, the prophecies about the Messiah, the prophecies provided in the Old Testament were twice mentioned in that first creed. I mean, we are a people of the book, as it, as people say. And so it's extremely important what we think about the Bible, because we are either going to decide to put ourselves under the authority of the Bible, or we are going to put the Bible under the authority of our own feelings. And that's often what we see in the progressive movement, is that the Bible is, it might be uh, loved, it might be admired from a literary perspective, but it's essentially put under the authority of the person's own thoughts and feelings. And I've even seen this in their belief statements. The church that I was at, uh, after they went on to identify as a progressive Christian community, they changed their belief statement. They used to have the, the Nicene Creed on there. They had the Apostles' Creed. They took all that stuff down, and they put something in there about being led by personal conscience. We respect personal conscience. And so, uh, you know, of course, you can imagine all kinds of chaos that can come out of that. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, here's the thing. And a lot of times in the progressive movement, they will, it's sort of a, it, it's like a, a diversion when you're talking about biblical authority or, or the inerrancy or, or uh, infallibility of scripture. And the, what they'll do is accuse you of worshiping the Bible. So they'll use the term bibliolatry. Oh, well, that's just bibliolatry. God didn't want us to worship the Bible. And honestly, that is, you know, I know people always say everything is a straw man, but it's honestly just such a straw man because if you believe that God has communicated to you through the Bible and that is his word, it's not worshiping the Bible to obey what he says. And I don't understand why, well, I, I do. I think that that is thrown out as a diversion to keep from having to deal with biblical inerrancy and infallibility and all of that. But I would just encourage you, don't let somebody do that to you. You know, you're not worshiping the Bible if you obey it. You're simply doing with it what Jesus did. You know, Jesus called it the word of God and it used phrases like it is written dozens of times. And that all refers to the inspiration and, and the authority of the scriptures. Him calling the Bible the word of God as many times as he did. Man, as a Jesus follower, that's what I want to do. I want to I want to have Jesus view of scripture. And so I would just encourage Christians to, to look at it that way and not to be intimidated by the charge that you're somehow worshiping the Bible or making it the fourth member of the Trinity or something like that. No, you're 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 spot on. You know, I remember uh, when I was I had just graduated high school, so this was like 2000, and we were going. I was going into the college group at church where we were at, and some of the some of the older people in the in the college group were coming back from school, and I asked, you know, I've been friends with them a long time. You know, what do you think of Bible college? You know, uh, what are you discovering in those types of things? And um, what they would tell me. One, I remember one guy specifically telling me, "Well, you know, I'm not doing." So well, uh, what's uh, what's happening? You know, what's happening uh, there with that? You know, I was really concerned that he would say that because he was a really strong, mature Christian. You know, he was really grounded in the Bible. He said, you know, my faith and confidence in the Bible has completely eroded because they haven't been able to answer my questions. And I was like, wait, what? And that's always stuck with me in the back of my head because it's like we were in a Bible-believing church. You know, he could have gone to any of the pastors to talk to them um, at any time. You know, we were encouraged to ask questions. In fact, we in, in in the high school youth group I was at, we we would we went through for two years. We went through uh, systematic theology. So you know, th- for Sunday school, so it was a good church. You know, we were going through and learning systematic theology as high school students. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, yeah, right. I mean, totally, which kind of fed into the whole, like, I'm a theology nerd. And so I was already like reading stacks of books and theology. And anyway, so that's another long story. But, you know, it, it's it's always struck me because it's like, you know, when I led a Bible study, even we, you know, went through the text and um, we would sometimes just have questions that would be asked. And I would just focus on those questions. I go to the whiteboard and just answer the question, write them out. And I kind of even transitioned that when I have transitioned, uh, that was a couple years ago now since we're in California I haven't I haven't led a Bible study but I I took that idea because I know that lots of people are asking questions and I started uh, for one of our podcasts answering questions and then I answer questions for Christianity.com and the, the kind of oh what do you think about this and what do you think about that and you know those those kinds of things people are asking questions and we need to not be afraid of those because you know we have such a rich um, intellectual history you know we were the ones that started hospital 
hospitals and uh, universities and colleges. And so, you know, Jesus says um, part of the great commandment is to love him with our minds. And so we don't have to be afraid of questions or or anything like that, um, like you talk about in the book. And that's another thing I appreciate about this this book. It's uh, really good. So this this leads in, I guess, to the next question. What do you think it looks like in our local churches for pastors and elders to provide a safe place for questions of doubters and to engage with the intellectual side of the Christian faith? Well, I think that you've just described it perfectly. <laughs> Talking about, first of all, really good theological training. Even in high school, I, I have found, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not a youth pastor, so I'm not boots on the ground day with this stuff. But when I have visited youth groups or spoken to young people, they get excited about this stuff. I, I've, I've seen it time and time again, where they just, the light goes on. And when you start giving them evidence for what they believe, when you start taking them through deeper theological issues, they get really excited. I've seen that happen time and time again. But I think the way you've described it is a, a really good start to start early, start in childhood with apologetics, even through junior high, high school. You can do age-appropriate things that way. But uh, to, to more specifically to your question, I think that one of the main reasons I've discovered people leave the evangelical church to go into progressive Christianity is because their doubts weren't taken seriously. And I think that it can be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction for just us typical evangelicals that when somebody is expressing doubt, let's say about the resurrection, like, well, I just don't know if Jesus really rose from the dead. There can almost be either like fear or maybe impatience. Like, what's wrong? Just just get on board. You know, why don't you believe this? It's, you know, it's not hard or <laughs> something like that. And that actually really dismisses the person who has these deeper questions and makes and it can even make them feel stupid or it can make them feel um, like they don't have enough faith or that they have a weak faith. I think that one of the best things that churches can do in maybe in a smaller group setting like you've described where you've got a whiteboard and you invite people to ask some of these questions, but also to be patient if, you know, your your simple answer or, you know, just the first answer you give may, may not fully do the trick, but to walk in a discipleship, discipleship type relationship with people who have these outs. And of course, with the, the end goal being to, to nudge them toward truth, but to let them take the time they need with it, because in the progressive world, doubt is actually considered, it's like a mark of spiritual maturity. And, and I even heard other people refer to it as a culture of doubt, and it really is, and it's not a healthy way to doubt. You know, I think if, if doubt is fine. God's not afraid of your doubts. Um, but ultimately, I think our doubt should be, we should be doubting so that we can move toward truth, whatever that may be, but not just so we can find the next thing to question and doubt. And so that's why I think the progressive church is like a really unsafe place for people to be who have legitimate doubts because they're going to be praised for that. They're not going to, it's not going to matter if you have an answer or if you land on truth. Truth isn't even on the table. It's not even part of the paradigm. And so we need to do better. I think the evangelical church needs to have places, you know, smaller groups is the way to go or one-on-one conversations with people who are into this stuff that, that can walk with people. But that's going to take pastors and elder boards realizing the importance of having apologists in your churches. And I think that as someone who does apologetics, I have found that to be difficult at times to convince church leadership that it's important. And and so, you know, if pastors are listening, get some people who like apologetics to start a group and, and support them and encourage them to do that because it's a really important ministry um, that we're actually commanded to do, as you mentioned in 
bringing up Second Timothy. You're so right, and I, I think I think you know, growing up in the church like I did, um, I think one of the things, and you kind of touched on it when you were talking there just a minute ago, and your excellent answer, by the way, is it's, it's questions are viewed at almost with suspicions. Like, why are you asking this? You know, you you should already know the answer to that. You know, you've been in the church your whole life, and I mean, I understand that, and to some degree, you know, um, and even in even in the church where I grew up, I felt like if I asked a question, people are going to be expecting me because I read all the books or whatever to know the answer. And it, so it was hard. I went to the books because I didn't want to answer the question, which, you know, that's pride, of course. But I didn't feel like I could. So I had to really wrestle with things that I thought and things that I believed. And I was kind of going, not getting involved with any progressive thing, but just thinking through like, why do I believe what I do? And, and those things, um, you know, wrestling with it, with a firm conviction in the truthfulness of, you know, Christianity and, and in the historic teaching of the church and discovering what that was. It took me, you know, into a deep, deep dive, it took me to graduate school, of course, seminary as, and to continue to read and study. But it's, you know, we don't have to be afraid of questions. Questions. We don't have to be afraid of um, going to people, you know. Um, you know, I like what Burke Parsons once said. I, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but you know, when we come to church, we should take off our masks. And we, we, what, what he's talking about is we should, you know, there, there is a like you talked about. We do need to be on guard for truth, but we should let our masks down. We should just, we should let down the pretense and just be our, be ourselves. You know, not be a, a, a facade or, you know, um, per- playing pretend. And um, part of that, I think, is asking questions. Uh, being inquisitive is good. Um, not being afraid to, you know, ask questions of your pastor. And and, and I would say to Pat, since I've been um, in ministry in the local church and outside of it, I would just say, if you're a pastor, and I know there's a lot of you that listen, if somebody comes to you, you know, your whole goal is to shepherd them. So if they're coming to you, just make sure that you're asking questions, that you're really listening um you know you're you're clarifying to make sure you understand that person that you you know use those shepherding skills that you have you know and and just really minister to that person you know there there's a reason why they're coming to you and and sharing with you you know and and um so so just take that opportunity to see it as a privilege that they're opening up to you and sharing with you i i that that would just be some very basic encouragement yeah and i think that's right especially when i'm thinking back about my experience of doubt and just not really knowing any pastors that I at least that I thought could answer some of these claims and so yeah it's, that's a that's a good word yeah I'm, I'm sorry that you didn't have any pastors that could walk alongside of you yeah well my pastor my pastor was trying to lead me away it was it was rough can you briefly describe what deconstruction is and how you went through your own process of reconstructing your faith in Christ upon historic Christianity yeah so the word deconstruction uh is tricky because philosophically it actually goes back to uh, this philosopher and essentially it's sort of deconstructing you know in a broad sense we could say it's like picking apart your beliefs deciding what you believe is true about all of those things um, on, a, on a more
more formal level, it, it has to do with redefining words and has to do with what, you know, the level of meaning of the words we use. And so I think in a broad sense, it's often just used to refer to Christians who are picking apart their beliefs and discarding them, essentially. And so a lot of people will deconstruct all the way into atheism. Uh, some will come to the brink. Uh, some will reconstruct back to some kind of a faith. But essentially, it never looks like, it, it hardly ever looks like what I would call a historic expression of Christianity. It's very often very mystical or new age. Uh, it can it can include other belief systems like Buddhism. And I, I've seen progressive Christians who have, quote unquote, reconstructed and changed their names to give themselves a, a Buddhist name or a Hindu name, you know, incorporating all kinds of practices from other religions and things. So when there's a deconstruction, it's very rare. I, I, I tend to find a few people here and there who have reconstructed back to restored faith, but, but that's not the typical story. And so uh, when I was going through my time of doubt, and I do I do say it was a time of deconstruction because now I wasn't wanting to deconstruct. I didn't want to disbelieve, but it was sort of happening to me. Now at the time, I didn't understand what was happening to me. I, I didn't know that word. I didn't know that term. But essentially, I was becoming intellectually persuaded that what I had believed all my life was not true. And this caused just great turmoil in my soul because my it, in one sense, it was like my mind was intellectually convinced that it wasn't true, but my heart knew that it was true. And so I just was in this tension all the time in this turmoil. And so that's kind of what my deconstruction looked like. Uh, it wasn't a long process. Some people take 10, 15 years to deconstruct. I would say my process of the time I left the class and was just a few months of getting to the point where for the first time in my life, I really didn't know if God actually existed. Hmm. I mean, forget the truth about Christianity. I, I didn't know if God actually existed. And so my reconstruction was longer than the deconstruction, I would say. So I remember just crying out to God, this weird prayer, like, oh, God, if you if you exist, if you're really out there, please send me a lifeboat. Send me somebody that can help me. Because here's what I decided. I, in the, I had a little bit of peace when I came to this decision is that if I did become persuaded intellectually that Christianity wasn't true or that God didn't exist or something like that, what I wanted to make sure is that I had looked at every side of the argument. I wanted to make sure I didn't just make that decision based on this one pastor, but I knew, okay, so for whatever information he has, whatever facts or logic or whatever it is that he has, there is somebody out there just as smart as he is that has all of those same facts that's come to a different conclusion. And I want to consider what they say before I decide anything. And so that gave me a little bit of peace. So I prayed, I begged God, and then uh, that's when I was driving in my car and I was fiddling with the radio and I heard, I actually, it was Robbie Zacharias and I didn't know who that was, but he was on a college campus answering skeptical questions from college students and all of the questions were like the same ones that were, that the pastor was bringing up in this class. And so I thought, okay, so here's the person who knows all this stuff, but he's come to different conclusions. So I began to listen to Robbie every day and what was astonishing. And it wasn't just Robbie. Through his ministry, I found uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary and other apologetics resources that I began to dive into. But what was so astonishing to me is I don't know if I kind of expected for the Christian answer to be kind of weak, like, okay, that gives me enough to believe in God and I can still hang on to God. And I guess, I suppose it's, it's, it's okay. It was a good enough reason. That wasn't the case. What I discovered was that the answers were so much more compelling than anything this pastor had brought up. Like he had shown one fact 
facet of the diamond. And I was getting the full enchilada over here with apologetics, where they were going back 2,000 years into history, deep into philosophy, deep into history, archaeology, science. Oh my gosh, I was blown away with the utter, just robust intellectual, not just answers, but they just dwarfed the claims. And and I was honestly, before I discovered that, I was a little bit scared. Like, what am I going to find? I don't know what I'm going to find. But I found that the Christian answers blew away the skeptical ones. And so that was, of course, a, a surprise and, a, of course, an exciting surprise because, again, I didn't want to disbelieve. But but it was, yeah, it was just very exciting. So my, my faith took years. I, I mean, I think fairly, fairly quickly after I discovered all of these answers, I was persuaded that Christianity was true. And then it was just fun digging in and, and learning how we got our Bible, how we know that we have the right books, was it transmitted accurately and all that stuff. That was a joy after I had sort of become settled. And so, uh, yeah, around 2015, 2016 was when I felt like, okay, I'm totally settled and I can move on from this. But then I just really believe God called me to help others. And that's when I started my blog and later the podcast. Well, I love what you just said. And you said so, so many good things. Um, but the big thing is, is you wrestled with truth. You wrestled with it and not from a place of doubt, but from a place of conviction about the truth itself. You wanted to know the truth. You didn't want to live in doubt. And that distinction, as you write about in the book, is is just so important because, you know, many people, our, our culture, you know, it, doubt is viewed as a virtue, right? So right. if I doubt, I'm I'm cool and I, I'm hip. I, you know, we you you lived in California, you know, it's it's cool here. To, I, I, I doubt that or whatever, you know, people don't say it like yeah. that of course but that's what they're really saying it's like I, I doubt the validity of your claim I doubt the validity of your view and then they present their view as the only one which is interesting um, because it's like actually you're saying that's you're arguing for truth at that point and we know that truth isn't neutral anyway so yeah yeah, yeah that's really true because I think one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity aside from the ones we've already talked about is really this sort of this desire to ebb and flow with culture. So whatever culture thinks about anything at any given moment, I guarantee you that's what the progressive church is going to affirm. And then they will sort of, art, you know, they'll look at us old-fashioned evangelicals as, you know, you guys are just, you're not with the times, you're, you've are you got this outdated morality, you've got this outdated view of sexuality. And so, yeah, it's, and, and, and just logically speaking, like that doesn't make sense to me. Why would I ascribe to a movement that's going to affirm everything culture does? I mean, Christians have always been countercultural. Christians from the first century have been countercultural. Why would I, why all of a sudden would God be like, hey, you know what? Actually, culture got it all right. So let's go with them on this. I mean, that doesn't even make sense logically. You're so right. You're so right. Well, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, your podcast, where people can find you on social media? You mentioned your blog, those types of things. Maybe any other places that you that you write that you really like to write for. Yeah, sure. I uh, You can find my, you can find everything on my website. So that's alisachilders.com. And I have a podcast called the Alisa Childers Podcast, where I, I, I tend to focus focus on apologetics issues through the lens of answering progressive Christianity. So most of my episodes in one way or another will touch on the progressive movement um, in one way or another. And I do have a blog, although I don't, I, I haven't had tons of time to blog because of the book. And then I'm actually getting ready to sign a contract for another book, but I do have a book coming out. It's called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. And that's coming out this week and uh, on the 6th. And so you can get that, uh, 
you, you, again, there's a landing page on my website that you can look at that on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm at Elisa Childers. And so, yeah, you can find me. I'm, I'm everywhere. So you can find me there and uh, YouTube, Elisa Childers as well. Well, I look forward to checking you out some more and I'll definitely be listening to your podcast. So I would encourage our listeners to do the same. And um, so just as we wrap up this this interview, I've really have enjoyed it. Uh, can you give us a few takeaways? Yeah, I think for, for Christians who may be listening to this, I think my main takeaway would be don't don't feel overwhelmed by this because I know that a lot of, I get emails all the time from people who are seeing these ideas sort of bubbling under in their churches. They're hearing some of the language. They're seeing books being recommended from the pulpit that are more progressive in their substance. And they're kind of panicking. They're feeling overwhelmed. They're wanting to know what to do. And I just want to encourage you with something that, you know, we have enjoyed in America such religious freedom for so long that we're not used to, as American Christians, we're not used to having to fight some of these battles. You know, 20 years ago, you could probably pick just about any evangelical church, and for the most part, you'd probably be okay. You might disagree with some secondary issues and find a different place that might be more in line, but I mean, you you know, we just were not in that place anymore. You can't, you really can't just trust a church because it has the word evangelical on it or because it has even, you know, a, a denominational stamp on it. You just, you can't do that anymore. But I want to encourage you that God always, throughout history, I've studied so much church history in this journey, and what always encourages me time after time after time is just seeing each generation of Christian always have their spirit of the age that they have to battle. They always have their doctrinal battles. They always have their false teachings and false teachers that they have to stand against. I mean, it would be so nice. We would, I would love it if we could just sit back and be like, it's all good. You know, we don't have to call anything out. It's just, yeah, it's like you, you do you and you do you and I'll do me. But the Bible just doesn't give us that option. But here's the, here's the thing. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God and he has made his church. He has kept his promise that nothing is going to take his church out. And we're here. And there are people that are answering these claims. There's lots of resources. And so I just want to encourage you to know that this isn't the first time that Christians have had to stand against false ideas. And I've been just blown away just with people in my own life as things happen in their own churches, how you can see just the spirit of God rise up in them. People that maybe their personality might be more timid naturally, or they might not be very confronted, but you just see something rise up in them and they become strong in the Lord to speak truth and to defend truth. And the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that we've had since the first century. And so just to encourage you that it's nothing new and uh, we have the Word of God. It's eternal. It's not progressive. It's not changing. And that's actually something that I think is very stabilizing. Oh, you're so right, Alyssa. I, well, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you've done a very good job and you've done a service, great service to the church in, in writing this resource. Um like I said, I'm I'm excited to check out your podcast. I know that I'll be blessed, and I encourage our listeners to do so also. And uh, just play Christ Church's blessings on you. Thank you so much, David. It was a joy. I would like to thank Baker Books for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to visit the Baker Book website at bakerbookhouse.com. Bakerbookhouse.com for the latest releases from them. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. 
You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.